welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we're doing another fabulous listener request talking about women in classical music, specifically conductors. And what really struck me as Kristen and I were reading a lot about this field of work is that it is such an interesting microcosm of feminist issues, women's issues that we have touched on a million times in the podcast. Everything from gender discrimination to issues about whether to have and raise children. It runs the whole gamut. Yeah, and one of the reasons why a listener suggested this topic is because women conductors have been in the news recently. Right. Uh, conductor Marin Alsop, who's the music director of the Baltimore and Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestras, made history in September as the first woman to conduct the high-profile Last Night of the Proms in its nearly 120-year History And for those not in the know, I was not in the know. Me neither. The last night of the proms marks the end of London's eight-week summer season of classical music, and it is a big deal. Yeah, and so Alsop said, quote, A lot has been made of me being the first woman to conduct the last night, and I'm incredibly honored and proud. But I have to say it's amazing that there can still be a first for women in 2013. And that's just one of many (laughs) fantastic quotes that... That Alsop has made, um, and, and we'll talk more about her a little bit in the podcast. But she, among women in conducting, Alsop is at the top of her field. And she's very outspoken about this issue of women in conducting. Although we should say that's not the first time that Alsop was at the proms. Earlier in September, she led the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And last summer, she led the Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra at the proms as well. And unfortunately, it wasn't just the uh, merit of her own accomplishment that landed her in the news. It was also the reaction that her accomplishment garnered mainly from Russian men. Uh, so in early September, Vasily Petrenko, who's the principal conductor of the National Youth Orchestra and the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, said a whole bunch of stuff and I, I'm picturing him like running his mouth and not being able to stop it. He one of the many things he said was a cute girl on a podium means that musicians think about other things. And this is like an age old argument, I guess, against having women as conductors. They say that, you know, as opposed to a male conductor during which, you know, musicians have less sexual energy and can actually focus on the music. Yeah, he also went on to say that when women have families, it becomes difficult to be as dedicated as is demanded in this business. Now, I will say that Petrenko obviously was called out mm-hmm. for these kinds of sexist comments. And then he backtracked and said, no, you're misunderstanding what I was saying. My wife actually is in an orchestra. I love women in music. It's kind of like making a racist statement and then saying, but I have a friend who is black. Right. Um, it does not take away, actually, the, the heart of what you are saying. But this is also not the first time that statements have been made like this, because a year ago, Yuri Tamirkanov, who was Marin Alsop's predecessor at the Baltimore Symphony, uh, was being interviewed and he said, a woman should be beautiful, likable, attractive. Yeah, Yuri. And then he goes on to say, musicians will look at her and be distracted from the music. Oh, come on. 
Yeah, and I mean, everybody's come up with arguments against that, like really logical, common sense arguments. Like, are you, are you telling me that there aren't people in the orchestra already who would be attracted to an attractive, good-looking, handsome conductor who well, is male? Like, who cares? Like, aren't you there in the orchestra to play music? Right. Well, and I mean, that statement is also saying that that women are, are merely useful when they sit still and look pretty. Um, but this issue of the this idea of the male conductor of the maestro, you know, mm-hmm. the title of this podcast is the maestras of classical music, because a lot of times when we think of the conductor, it is a dude. And that was something that Alex Ross wrote about um, in The New Yorker recently. Yeah, he said that the principle of male power is so deeply ingrained in the mythology of the conductor that sentiments such as these are still not uncommon. And he calls it the stiflingly male atmosphere in the upper echelons of classical music that reinforces the image of a dim, hidebound art out of tune with modern reality. I mean, it is kind of icky and weird to look at the the profession of classical music and orchestra conducting and see just how backwards it still is. Women have to actively, it seems like, hide their femininity to pass as an acceptable conductor. Well, and that doesn't sound different from a lot of other areas that we've talked about in terms of uh, more traditionally male-dominated professions or uh, areas of academia, etc. So even though classical music might seem like an esoteric subject to talk about, one of the things that we were so surprised about in looking into the research for this podcast is how again and again and again, it's going to echo into other areas that, you know, uh, spread well beyond classical music. Um, for instance, there are differences in the way that we as the audience perceives the music and the way that music is conducted by women. According to a study published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology in February of 2012. Yeah, and a lot of how we view women and men ourselves is reflected in how we view an orchestra, depending on who it is conducted by. So the researchers found that those who believed they were listening to a woman conductor, they were obviously not at a performance, they were listening to music through headphones. Uh, they said those who believe they were listening to a woman conductor rated the performance higher in feminine qualities such as elegance and delicacy versus more male qualities like uh, booming sound or something. Um, overall, they gave the performance higher grades than those who believe they were listening to a man. And so boiling it down, the researchers determined that if someone can defy gender stereotypes and earn that much acclaim, we assume she must be absolutely amazing and we judge her accordingly. So kind of like the, the Marin Alsops, you mm-hmm. know, this trailblazing woman who is at the top of uh, conducting, not just as a woman, but just for orchestras in general. She often is lauded as being so amazing, not because she's not amazing, but also I think that is elevated a bit because of her gender. Like, look, a woman's doing it. Yeah, she must be incredible. So speaking of Alsop, we know that in that case, there is at least one woman conducting an orchestra out there. But what is the field like? I mean, the Guardian newspaper called it one of the last glass ceilings in the music industry. And that's quite a statement. And it's one that is slowly cracking, uh, according to Henry Fogel, who's the former president of the League of American Orchestras. Back in 2007, 
He pointed out that it's safe to say that until the past 15 or so years, there simply was no woman with an important international conducting career. We're not saying that there were no women conducting. We're just saying that major orchestras, you know, women like Marin Alsop heading up the kind of orchestras of that caliber just weren't around. And we did see in the 1980s, that's that's when we see a small surge in female conductors led by composer-conductor Victoria Bond, uh, Buffalo Philharmonic conductor Joanne Folletta, and, of course, Marin Alsop. And in conservatories or graduate schools in music, women are making up about half of orchestral musicians, but their numbers in the actual orchestras are pretty small. And among conductors, it's really small. And that, again, not to keep trying to apply this to other areas, but that sounds a lot like the situation for, oh, I don't know, women in science, women in STEM, yeah, I mean, I, that's that's what I found so interesting about it, that it does perfectly reflect other fields like that that are traditionally male-dominated. And so in 2009, the L.A. Times pointed out that women head up only about 12% of the country's symphonies, and even training programs are, are male-dominated, too. You know, you mentioned graduate schools and conservatories, but only a handful of conducting fellowships are offered to women, giving them that leg up in the field. And because of that, and also because Marin Alsop is such an awesome woman, uh, she has set up a fellowship specifically to devote to women who are interested in conducting, to train them to uh, fund their education for that. And Mother Jones, in light of those sexist comments that were made about Alsop conducting at the prom, uh, they, they did a tally of orchestras in the U.S., and they found that about 80% are led by men, around 20% are conducted by women, and that includes assistant and substitute conductors. But then when you break it down to high-budget U.S. orchestras, 91 are led by men, 12 by women, but then... When you get into the elite, the 22 highest budget orchestras in the United States, 21 led by men, one led by a woman, Marin Alsop. And uh, I will say that um, Alsop has a maker's profile over at PBS.org. And she talks about um, how when she was at Juilliard, she told her teacher that she wanted to become a conductor. And the teacher just responded, and it was a woman too, who said, Marin, keep playing your violin and be quiet because women can't conduct orchestras. I mean, come on. And she decided at that moment that she still wanted to do it. And it was so cool because she talks about how she went home and told her mom about that story and how her mom went out and bought her a box of batons. Aww. Right? So... Talking about stuff mom did tell you. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's great. I mean, my mom, well, my mom would have gone and beat the teacher up, but uh, (laughs) with with a baton, (laughs) baton. just thrown the whole box at him. Um, but so we mentioned at the top of the podcast just how much conducting reflects broader society as far as gender norms and discrimination goes. And. Similarly, women in conducting also grapple with a lot of the same issues of motherhood and whether or not to have children. This is coming from a 2006 report called Conducting Motherhood, the Personal and Professional Experiences of Women Orchestral Conductors. And it was written by Bertie Lee Bartley, who is a conductor herself. 
She spoke with 17 professional women conductors across the U.S., U.K., and Australia, five of whom were mothers. So Bartleet found that there are few mothers working in the orchestral conducting profession. But for those who are, their private concerns about child rearing haven't been seen as relevant to their work because there's this assumption that that they should just be able to excel and we shouldn't have to talk about it because, you know, if you, if you can't cut it, you know, if, if it's too hot in the kitchen, get out. Isn't that how the saying goes? Right. Yes. If you can't conduct your orchestra... <laughs> In a hot kitchen, where can you conduct it? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Something like that. Someone sew that on a pillow, please. Um, And this, I mean, you might think, okay, well, what's wrong with that? You know, maybe you shouldn't bring your your home life to work. Maybe you shouldn't talk about it and make yourself all special because you have ovaries. But this really actually has ramifications for future conductors and the profession as a whole if the profession and the culture cannot be flexible enough to accommodate moms. Women, young girls who grow up, they want to be conductors, but then they hit that wall that we've talked about in previous episodes of like, do I lean in? Do I continue to pursue my career and, you know, go after a Marin Allsop like level of a career? Who does have a child? Who does? Yeah. Yeah. She has a child. You know, or do they take a step back and focus more on their family? Because the whole thing about conducting is that it is brutal as far as travel, schedules, all of that. Yeah, I did not realize before looking more into this. I just hadn't dawned on me of how aggressive the schedule is for someone who is um, at the top of the conducting world. Because mm-hmm. you're going to be going to London to conduct the prompts. And then you might be going to Sao Paulo. to Basically, I want to be Marin Elsa. Right. <laughs> if, if that's not coming through. Um, so. Clearly, there are issues of not just time, but also travel and being away from home a lot. And so Bartleet found in talking to these women conductors with that was that there's this fear that any discussion of motherhood would serve to marginalize them even more. And that's not going to help them out when they're already such a minority. Right. You know, don't don't make yourself separate. Don't make yourself any more different than you are. Just don't talk about it. But like we said, you know, the the less you talk about it, the less it will ever uh, get addressed. And so pregnancy is really seen as disruptive to the profession, not only personally to you, the conductor. But some people say that, you know, something that is so obviously feminine as being pregnant is disruptive to the whole process, you know. And so a woman being tired during pregnancy or nauseated, you know, that's seen as weakness. While men who are tired, you know, and they're jet setting all over the place, they they get excuses made for them. Yeah, there was one conductor that she talked to who conducted through her eighth month of pregnancy and was just saying how she was so determined to never let, for instance, symptoms of morning sickness ever be known to anyone in the orchestra because, you know, she didn't want to undermine her own authority because that's one thing, I mean, for for Alsop and for other women as well, getting that sense of authority from your orchestra can also be an uphill climb for women. And so when you toss motherhood into that, unfortunately, it often serves to erode that sense of authority. Right. And then we get into the whole argument of having it all, which, you know, we talked about in our lean in episodes, you know, uh, Bartleet's 
conversations with these conductors really did focus on the fact that they know they can't have it all. They know there's no such thing as having it all. You have to sacrifice a whole lot if you want to, quote unquote, have it all. It's more about doing it all. And you can't. Well, it was interesting, too, in this study to read about how a number of these women were child free by choice Mm -hmm. and they had no qualms about it. I feel like a lot of times the conversations that we hear about women who choose intentionally to not have kids so that they have more time and energy to devote to their careers. There's often a lot of guilt attached to that. But for whatever reason, I didn't get that sense from a lot of these women, maybe because of the determination it already took to get to the point that they were in their professions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of refreshing, honestly, to where it was just like, no, I I don't have kids and I'm an orchestra conductor and that's what I wanted. That's how I saw my life. Right. One of them was talking about how um, she would rather do something perfectly. And she had dedicated her life to conducting, and so she wanted to do that perfectly. And she said that if she had a child, the guilt that she would feel about not being able to do either one right, raise a child or be a conductor, would be too much for her. And so there are a lot of these female conductors out there who joke about, I need a wife. Because there are so many um, women out there who are married to male conductors, and they dedicate their lives completely to their husband's career, supporting him, you know, being there to take care of the kids, take them to school and all that. But if you are the mom and traditionally you're expected to do all that stuff, like it just it seems overwhelming and impossible. It's like the clash of the traditional female private sphere versus the more male public sphere, which comes up when you look at the evolution of of orchestras and women's place in orchestras and conducting going back to when orchestras first began taking shape at the end of the 17th century. Right. And they started out as just small ensembles and what is considered to be one of the biggest musical developments in the world is the expansion of orchestras from that small European ensemble in the 17th century to the present day configuration of, of about a 100 players, which emerged in the 19th century at the same time that the powerful conductor uh, emerged uh, and his uh, his role became so publicized. And so gradually, as the popularity of orchestras and larger orchestras picked up, the role of conductor gained popularity and prominence. Um, but, but before that, in the Baroque period, for instance, musical leadership would sometimes come from the harpsichordist or the organist, and other times a musical director would stand somewhere random and just conduct off to the side. <laughs> I kind of like that image. Yeah, just like he's just in a closet somewhere. Like, they can sense it, right? Exactly. But then around... 1800, the keyboard takes a backseat to stringed instruments and composers started combining different instrument sounds. So the first violinist would lead the performance from his chair or a music director would lead the part of performance with gestures using a rolled up piece of paper or a stick, which led to today's batons. If I were, side note, (laughs) if I were to conduct an orchestra, I would like to use pretzel sticks. That way I could snack... (laughs) But I could also replenish and conduct. I was honestly so excited to hear what you were going to say. I was thinking carrot, because the whole reason they use a white stick is so that the orchestra can see it well. I don't want to eat a carrot, though. That's not as delightful <laughs> as maybe a chocolate dip But, no, but imagine stick. it. It's so much more comedic. It's like a Bugs Bunny thing. Like, 
Conducting with this big orange carrot with the green leaves hanging down. Oh, classical music fans right now are, or musicians are cringing <laughs> at the thought, I'm sure, of a, a conductor with a carrot. Right. So then we move on to the early 1800s, and that is when we see the conductor composers begin to stand up on a podium front and center as orchestras grew. Because, like we said, as those orchestras expanded to what we know today to be about 100 people, they kind of needed to be up higher where they could be seen. Um, and to give a little bit of history as far as the development of orchestras themselves, 1842, we have America's first and oldest existing professional orchestra, the Philharmonic Society of New York, which later became the New York Philharmonic. And by 1900, we had four, quote unquote, established orchestras in America, which were Boston, Chicago, Cincinnati, random. I'm sorry, not to offend anyone in Cincinnati, but like, OK. And then Pittsburgh. There were others, of course, but they just weren't as established and stable. Now, women were not discouraged from playing music at that time. No, certainly playing instruments was something that would be part of a refined woman's education, but only for the purpose of making her more into a marriageable lady. Kind of rounds out your homebound status, because not only can you cook and you can clean and you can do your curls and corset, lace up your corset really tightly, but you can also play a harpsichord. So many marketable skills. What can't she do? Nothing can hold her back now. She throws her bonnet into the air, a la Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, Nothing can hold her back now except for the lack of transportation out of her own home. That's right, because her early group participation was limited to family ensembles. You were expected to be a classy lady who sat on your fainting couch and played the harpsichord as your father and mother did other instruments. Although I will say that my dad plays the piano and my siblings were very musical. I just sang very much off key. And there would be times growing up when we would gather around ye old piano and it was a delight. <laughs> George's version of the Von Trapp. That's right. The Von Congress. <laughs> well, so uh, you, you might be wondering... Why? If you're a new listener to our podcast, you might be wondering why these women were not allowed to participate in the larger orchestra environment. Um, an 1895 piece in Scientific American really sums it up. They describe how women's physical incapacity to endure the strain of rehearsal and performances prevented them from matching or surpassing male performers. Because remember, those hysterical floating uteruses and tiny waists made it hard for women to... I don't know, exist. Well, I mean, if we are talking about the corset era, when your outfit might be weighing up to 25 pounds, probably sitting and playing music for a really long time was not uh, very easy to do. But there was a solution. Ladies' orchestras were formed. In 1884, what is believed to be the first all-female orchestra is established in Chelsea, Massachusetts. Yep, and that's followed by more in Los Angeles in 1895, Philadelphia, Chicago, and others. And then moving forward through time, as we hit the 20th century, the conductor position becomes even more prominent and influential, and he is hailed for his public showmanship. He essentially becomes a figurehead of overall musical culture, and it is cemented that it is a masculine, strong position, not... A woman's job. But that's not to say, though, that there weren't 
women conductor pioneers, even though they're, they might not have been leading the Philharmonic, they were still leading orchestras. Uh, Antonia Bricco is one that we need to mention. She led her own orchestras in New York in the 1930s and devoted her life to fighting prejudice against women in the orchestral world. Yeah, her Women's Symphony Orchestra flourished from 1935 to 39 when it became known as the Bricco Symphony Orchestra. And in 1930, she became the first woman to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic. Seven years later, she was the first woman to conduct an opera performance by a major New York company. And in 1938, she became the first woman to conduct the New York Philharmonic. Oh, so I was wrong about them not (laughs) conducting the New York Philharmonic. Well, but not totally wrong because... Typically, back in these days, it was like a one-time guest performance. So it was like a... Um, Almost like a sideshow? Yeah. I mean, a little more classy than a side... But basically, it was like, look at this woman doing this thing. Isn't that fancy? Well, I also liked that Bricko once said, I do not call myself a woman conductor. I call myself a conductor who happens to be a woman. Yeah, and I mean, that speaks to just the dedication that that position takes and the dedication and chutzpah it takes to enter that male sphere. And then we have Nadia Boulanger, who is a composer-conductor who did consider herself more a composer, but it should be noted that in 1937, she was the first woman to conduct an entire program of the Royal Philharmonic in London. She just didn't make a, a one-stop, you know, conduct one piece and then leave. In the following year, in 1938, she appeared as the first woman conductor of the Boston, New York Philharmonic, and Philadelphia orchestras. And Sarah Caldwell made a lot of inroads, not just in classical music, but also in opera. She ran an opera company at Boston University in 1952, and later that decade started her own company. And she was both the director and the conductor. And in 1974, she became the second woman to conduct the New York Philharmonic. And I mean, even then, though, the first time was in with Boulanger in 1938. So that's quite a gap of years there. Um, and in 1976, though, she also became the first woman to conduct at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Well, I thought it was interesting that in 1974, when she conducted the New York Philharmonic, the program was partially sponsored by Ms. Magazine, and she offered only works by women. Hey, Women helping out women. Tooting a horn. Probably literally. or Many. A French many, horn. So many horns. Even a tuba. And finally on our list, our very short list of amazing conductor, lady conductor trailblazers, we have Judith Samoji, who became the first woman to conduct an opera in the U.S. And in 1974, she became the New York City Opera's first female conductor. 74. That was quite a year for women in classical. I'm telling you, the 70s, like, and that's leading up to that push we talked about earlier in the 80s when we see Marin Alsop Oh, yeah. So the work of these early pioneers has a direct influence Mm -hmm. on more women getting those appointments. Yeah, if it were not for these women, we might not even be talking about what a terrible sexist Vasily Petrenko is. Exactly. Exactly. It all ties together. And I know we've only cited a few names, and we've said Marin Alsop name so many times, but we should say that there are a lot of 
women today who are conducting um, smaller, medium, and even more elite orchestras, not just in the United States. Actually, the picture is better when you go over to Europe. A lot of women will get international appointments first and then come back to the United States with that cred and be able to get more appointments that way. Um, so it's getting better. I think that um, even though uh, Petrenko's comments are cringeworthy, it certainly sparked a conversation. Yeah. And, and that is the important thing. As we've said before on the podcast, without people uh, talking about it, you know, nothing's going to change. Just as within conducting, if you don't talk about motherhood and the issues around family and all that stuff, that's not going to change on the larger scale. If 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 we didn't have a, a lady like Marin Alsop conducting the last night of the proms, then maybe we would never have had this podcast episode. Well, and before the, the listener suggested this topic, I hadn't even thought about mm-hmm. this. I'm not a classical buff. I listen to classical music, but it's not a world that I'm immersed in. But like with a lot of other topics that we talk about on the podcast, there's so much to these issues mm-hmm. that that relate to um, broader women's issues. So I hope this has been enjoyable. And we did not even talk about composers. I know that uh, I think you did some preliminary research on that, Caroline, and it's a little bit better for women in mm-hmm. classical composition. But I really want to hear from women who are in orchestras. If there are any conductors listening, women or men who are into classical let us know your thoughts. MomStuffAdiscovery.com is where you can send them or you can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or find us on Facebook and leave us a message there. And we've got a couple messages to share with you right when we come back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, I've got an email here from Dennis and the subject line is gay Latino males perspective on feminism, womanism and solidarity. (laughs) And this is in response to our podcast on Latina feminism and is solidarity for white women. And he writes, I'm a homosexual male feminist and I also am a Latino person. I grew up in a very Americanized household, but there were still vestiges of our deeper Mexican culture. So I feel I have a perspective of how the American patriarchy and Latino machismo attitude influenced the women in my family and those of us in my family who are LGBT people. This unique perspective has molded me into a bit of a civil rights activist, and I'm beginning to work actively in my community to support the gender, sexual, and romantic minorities in my largely Latino community. I hope to help in the fight to break down some more patriarchal views here in my town and make it a more welcoming area for underrepresented minorities. I can see how feminism from the past and even to the 90s was very much centered on white middle-class women and kind of left women of color, trans people, and male allies to the wayside. I do think now that third-wave feminism has become very intersectional and feminism will have more inclusiveness for people of all races and genders in the near future, thanks in part to increased exposure of women of color feminists and queer feminists on the Internet and through the recognition of privilege by white feminists and using the platforms that they have to open up discussion for people of color, much like you two have done so wonderfully. So thanks, Dennis. All right, I have one here from Caitlin. She says, I just caught up on all of the Lean In dedicated podcasts and a few other episodes of yours this weekend, and it was all especially helpful. I'm being let go from my job of five years because changes are being made on a higher level that deem my position unnecessary. I thought I'd be here forever. 
Negotiating? Check. I need to ensure that I not only get employed, but also that I make what I deserve. Feeling imposter syndrome? Yep. What have I been doing for the last five years? How can I even pretend to be worth something when my work is now unnecessary? Dealing with anger? A big fat yes, though I'm trying to control it in positive ways. Being bossy or assertive? I need to be the latter, though I was also called the former in my youth. I feel even more ready to take on the job market and advocate for myself on my next adventure. And then she says, if anyone's also going through being let go, I got some great advice recently that I wanted to share. One, it's a business, not a family. They're not obligated to keep you, even though they care about you. Two, you are not your job title. You perform that function and you are good at it, but it is not who you are. That's made up of so much more and is how you determine your next steps. So thank you for the awesome advice and perspective, Caitlin, and good luck on your job search. Yeah, I really liked um, how she's offering a, had a, had a different perspective on leaning in other than, you know, how you do it while you are in your job, because I'm sure a lot of women can, and men listening, can relate to that situation. Unfortunately, recessions are the worst. So, if you have any thoughts to send our way, though, momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can do it. You can also tweet us at Podcast. Find us on Facebook as well, and follow us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You for some photo fun, and also what's fun is our Tumblr, StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com, where you can find episodes, blog posts, and other fun things that we find on the internet. And finally, you can check us out on YouTube. Head over to youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 